Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we're launching a very special series of podcasts which is going to be put out over the next three weeks looking at this question of European sovereignty. We are entering a new world disorder where great power competition seems to be coming back and where the realities of globalisation seem to be being instrumentalised by these powers as they compete with each other across different dimensions, whether this is on trade, on technology, on classical foreign policy issues and in the digital and cyber realm. And what is very interesting about this world is it's both challenging a lot of the ideas that we have about how relations between countries should be organised, who our allies are, and even on what the nature of, uh, of, of power is. And they're also quite uncomfortable questions for Europeans to engage with as well. Mark Eiskins, the former Belgian Prime Minister, once famously said that Europe was a, an economic giant, a political dwarf and a military worm. But one of the difficult things about this new age is that we're finding that even in the economic realm, it's much more complicated for Europeans to exercise power than we thought it was. And a particularly painful example of that has been the decision by Donald Trump to cancel America's participation in the Iran nuclear deal and his threat to impose secondary sanctions on European companies. To help us make sense of this new world that we're in, I have two of the most thoughtful people who've been writing and thinking on these things in the whole of Europe. First up, we have Jean Pisani-Ferry, who is uh, the Tommaso Padua Schioppa pr visiting professor at the European University Institute and, and a senior fellow with Bruegel. Um, he's also uh, the founding director of, 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 of Bruegel and has done a whole series of, of uh, important uh, posts within the French government, but also was one of the, in fact, was the author of, of uh, the En Marche uh, political platform before the election. And our other uh, guest is Guntram Voth, who is the current director of Bruegel, which is Europe's premier economic and finance uh, think tank based in Brussels. But he's also had a long career of public service, including at the, the European Central Bank, on, uh, and is one of the leading experts on, on uh, monetary and financial uh, issues in Europe. So um, why don't we go straight into describing what's what's going on at the at the moment and to talk about how these these different changes that are going on between the great powers some of the domestic changes within european countries are challenging the ways that we think about european sovereignty uh, jean do you want to start by saying how you see it from your perspective yeah thank you um i think it's it's really testing time for for europe because uh you know there are competences. They are in the field of trade, in the field of competition, in the field of regulation, in the field of the, the euro. Uh, the, uh, the EU is, is a giant. But so far, 
it um, has behaved in a world that was uh, largely benevolent. Uh, we had some differences with the U.S., but we never were in a situation where there was a potential conflict with the U.S. And so uh, the limits of the sovereignties uh, didn't need to be to be tested. Now they are being tested. They are being tested in in a context in which uh, in which we don't know how the U.S. Uh, will be behaving. We know that uh, in the Iran case. Um, they are using uh, all the discretionary power of, uh, of the issuer of the world currency. Uh, they're using all the discretionary power of being a major uh, economic uh, major economic power, uh, reference country for, for companies all over the world. And that's a very different situation. And Guntram, how do you see it? Well, I would start by saying that... Um what uh, I'm wondering what is really economic sovereignty and I guess my starting point is that um, of course a lot of power is now in the hands of of major companies major leading global companies and the economic sovereignty that states exercise is very much a sovereignty based on regulation based on uh, the power to break monopolies to reduce um, the power of uh, big companies if they um, abuse uh, abuse their dominant market position and so on. And I would say in these areas, the European Union is actually uh, still a very, very powerful player and remains a very, very powerful player. We've seen a recent decision uh, on, on Google to find Google, uh, which is uh, something that certainly no member state of the European Union could have done alone. Um, we have seen um, the power of the EU to uh, set data standards, privacy standards um, in, uh, in for, that really apply to all the big companies and that let uh, the CEO of, of uh, Facebook uh, say in U.S. Congress, oh, um, we, follow the, uh, we, want, we aim to follow the EU rules. So as a rule setter and as a standard setter and as a competition authority, I would say Europe is extremely powerful and remains extremely powerful. And it does so because it has well-established procedures and can do so. Now, there's many areas where we basically do not have uh, well-established procedures, um, and therefore our power is actually quite limited because we have to, to make up things on the go. One area is migration, where we basically don't have a strategy and try to sort of invent uh, a strategy on the go, but we don't have the institutions, we don't have the framework, and therefore we are not very, very powerful. So I would say it's testing times indeed, um, but it's times where we can succeed as a European Union if uh, we are able to put in place the right framework for it. So maybe we should try and go from the general to the more specific and, and look at some of the cases which have come up. And what's interesting about at least two of these cases, the trade wars and the Iran nuclear deals, they, they are in areas where Europe has institutions and should be powerful according to your joint definitions and, and yet we, we're being tested in both of those realms. Maybe we should start with the, with the question of trade wars. Don't know who, which one of you wants to, to, to lay out what the kind of challenges and how you think Europe is doing. I can, I can continue. I think on, on trade we recently had this uh, surprising uh, agreement between President Trump and uh, President Juncker 
uh, think that they want to avoid a trade war and they want to go for a liberalization. Uh, so we'll see what it gives. But it was a strong indication that the, the serious conversation took place where, uh, when Juncker uh, was in, in the White House. Um, now, on, on trade, the model uh, on the basis of which uh, the EU uh, behaves is that there is only one negotiator in principle, uh, that the EU, uh, and the EU receives a mandate from the member states. So, so it's not that it decides in a, in a full sovereign way, like for competition, where for competition it's the, uh, the commissioner or the commission that decides, and you know, that's even if member states do not agree, that's what it is. Uh, here, it's, it's a mandate to negotiate. It has to be approved ex ante and exposed by the member states, but it gives a lot of authority to the, uh, to the EU. Now, what is the EU going to do with this power? That's a big question, because um, the, uh, the US uh, under President Trump uh, is clearly behaving in a much more transactional way. It wants, he wants to make deals bilateral deals and, you know, uh, threaten and then uh, remove the threat and get a deal, etc. That's not the way the EU, the EU normally behaves. The EU is the power uh, um, that uh, wants to, you know, um, um, define and enforce rules. Um, and uh, we have a lot of common interest with the U.S. as regards the um, implementation by China of a certain number of international rules. Uh, we have a lot of common interest about the, the, the status of China, which is still um, considered developing countries, whereas in many fields it's not. Uh, but the question is that for the EU, are we going to sort of triangulate and be uh, the additional player that are going to um, side with uh, the US on some uh, issues and side with, some, with China on some other issues? And that would be uh, something that would be both support, but also potentially an obstacle to the transactional, uh, transactional approach of, of President Trump. And that's where he's been attacking the EU very, very strongly before, before reaching this deal, very negatively, perhaps because precisely he feared that the, the EU could behave as a sort of third party in this triangle. And do you think that it should? I think we should, absolutely. I think we should. Uh, you know, the, if you take the US, the EU uh, and China, uh, they are largely there's a sort of the structure of international trade is largely uh, determined around these countries or, or grouping of countries, uh, and I think we should be we should be definitely a player, uh, and we should push yeah. for what we believe in, uh, both in terms of rule setting and in terms of enforcement uh, and strict enforcement, uh, you know, uh, and, and graduation of China, who is, uh, which is uh, uh, increasingly. A uh, major player in very advanced field, and mm. for which the, the notion that it is still a developing country—I um, mean, it does not reflect reality. Perhaps add to to those points with which I agree, Jean. Um, uh, perhaps two two dimensions. I, I, I would say we are basically at the moment squeezed from both um, from the U.S. and from China. Um, from the U.S. side, we are squeezed with the threat of tariffs and. I agree that, of course, Juncker's, uh, President Juncker's uh, deal with President Trump is good news in the sense that an immediate trade war um, is, uh, is at least postponed or prevented. Um, but, uh, of course, we don't know how it will end. Um, and we, don't, we, we are still certainly not in a world where we can be sure that this threat is off the table, at least it's for a moment off the table. 
And on the other side, we are basically squeezed by China. Um, China, uh, a country that, um, as Jean said, still has the status of a developing economy, uh, or wants to have that status, but that, of course, is a, a country that is a major um, industrial policy leader by now, and that in many areas um, is doing a very aggressive industrial policy um, and an, a very aggressive external acquisition policy. And I think here we see two, two weaknesses uh, of the European Union. We, while we do have the instruments on trade to threaten back to Donald Trump and to stand up to him, we do not have the instruments to really de deal with um, this scenario of technological leadership um, in China um, and um, uh, more aggressive uh, rebalancing of our economies that would be necessary to reduce our vulnerability uh, to um, exports uh, to to a trade war to the U.S. So, so I think really the problem is not on the side for the Union. The problem ultimately is on the industrial policy side and on the macroeconomic policy side, where we would have to uh, actually ex uh, uh, deploy a number of very strong instruments to become more resilient in this world of global competition and less vulnerable to uh, to shocks, uh, be it from China or from the US. And I think that's where the next big building block is. Build our own stronger industrial policy to foster innovation, uh, to make sure that China cannot just buy our jewels without us even checking whether there are security uh, threats at stake. And, of course, rebalancing our economies and reducing our major, major current account surplus. Yeah, what, what Gunnar is saying is very important. Um, you know, on, on trade, uh, the EU has competence, but it is trade as such. Uh, whenever it has to do with investment, you're in a completely different world. So uh, there was a discussion about the control of, of foreign investment, uh, the acquisition of strategic uh, assets uh, in Europe, and it has gone nowhere. So it remains essentially a national policy. Um, and and the, the EU as such is, is completely powerless. So that's a big difference with, with a country that has you know, all the instruments uh, in its hand. It's not the case at all for Europe. That's a limitation to sovereignty. And it's not a coincidence that those things have not been um, Europeanized. I mean, there, there are big member states, not least the one which you know the best, Guntram, that have been very skeptical about doing these things on a European level. Yeah, look, I mean, uh, I, I think the fears uh, why big member states uh, and also small member states have resisted um, an investment screening device are, are, are justified fears. I mean, if you if you do not uh, trust entirely all of your partners, um, then of course uh, there is a risk that um, such an instrument would be misused for national uh, domestic industrial policy purposes uh, against the interests of smaller member states. Um, and so, uh, so I do see that um, the instrument misused. Um, now, I think that the challenge here is um, that we sort of think, okay, we, we better don't want to have this because we want to preserve our national interests against each other. And in the meantime, um, the big player, uh, China, uh, is, bu is buying up uh, major strategic assets without anybody really checking. And so, so I, I do think we need to move in that direction. But we do have to acknowledge that there's, there's risks associated with these instruments.
last time the discussion came up, it was a few uh, few quarters ago, and uh, uh, strong opponents to a screening, to a common screening of investment were Portugal and Greece. Greece under uh, Tsipras, uh, because there have been already major Chinese investment in Greece. And Portugal was in the process of selling its national grid to the Chinese as well. Yeah, you know, understandably, those, those countries felt uh, we're going to prevent it from doing what is in the national interest uh, in the name of preserving overall um, the, um, you know, the industrial um, assets of, uh, of the EU countries. And if your fear is that if we don't do that, we could end up in a situation like, for example, with solar panels, where there was a thriving European um, industry which got wiped out by Chinese competition, which many people say was subsidised by the state, or is it more similar to, to, your, to what's happened to the European tech industry, where companies don't manage to get to a reasonable scale before being bought out by the Googles and Amazons and Apples and Facebooks, um, who then um, uh, take them from being clever startups into being uh, massive um, entities? Hmm. Well... I think in, in part, in part uh, they, they did that because they perceived it, it is their interest. Um, it's all a matter of trust. It's all a matter of mutual trust and, you know, common perception of what's the context we're in and what we have to, what should be the priorities and what should be the instruments. And perhaps I would add, I mean, we have an interest in uh, investments coming from China to Europe. I mean, it's not that we would like to ban all investments. Um, on the contrary, uh, the investment relation that Europe has with China uh, is rather underdeveloped. It's not, uh, it's not uh, overly big. It's underdeveloped given the size of, of the two economic blocks. So in that sense, we should welcome investments. But what we, I think, need to be ca careful about and cautious about is investments into strategic assets that undermine uh, European sovereignty. Uh, that's the topic of, of today. So uh, I think you can have a long conversation whether uh, buying up the port of Piraeus uh, is undermining our sovereignty. Uh, I personally don't think so, um, and I probably would have let, let that deal pass. Um, mm. But there have been instances where... Um, uh, for example, in the U.S., um, the U.S. screening device forbid and prevented a merger um, of, uh, I think, uh, a port with um, uh, a port um, with uh, some Arab country, uh, country's port authority, yeah. right? On on grounds on grounds of security reasons, which probably was also exaggerated. But anyway, I mean, so so there is always an interpretation here, um, and indeed, you have to get. Um, uh, uh, some trust into the European institution that would be doing it, that it actually acts uh, in the interest of, of all of us and not in the interest of just some of us. And Guntram, while you're talking, can you explain a bit more in a bit more detail your point about the macroeconomic sovereignty? Yeah, sure. Um, on the macro, on the macro point, I, I guess what I'm what I'm saying here is that um, uh, take take again the example of the trade war between China and the U.S. So so the U.S. and China. Uh, are basically increasing their tariffs against each other and are basically at a, at a point where this could become really ugly and really be a, a, a huge problem for 
the Chinese economy. Now, what is interesting is that <clears throat> the Chinese authorities very quickly can um, mobilize um, their domestic macroeconomic policy tools, right? I mean, they can can use their banks to expand. They can uh, use fiscal policy and they can basically, um, let's say, at least reduce the impact of the external tariffs. <clears throat> now, in Europe, if the trade war with the U.S. escalates, um, which I think is not very likely at this stage, hopefully, but, uh, but anyway, it could happen, well, we don't really have... Um, uh, a joint macroeconomic policy to um, to uh, make sure that the costs are less less significant, and so we basically have to rely on some loose form of coordination in the Eurogroup, in the ECOFIN among finance ministers, to uh, to be able to act. So, what would you what do you think we should do to change that? Well, I mean, I I think I think basically it's uh, it's probably impossible to to really change that um, unless we we become a really federal country, which which we will not become. Um, so so I think what we have to do is we have to be just aware of this weakness, and we have to uh, much more strongly act uh, um, uh, to in the Eurogroup and perhaps increase um, the role of the Eurogroup chairman and so on. So. So that these things uh, get coordinated, and I think the feedback also between um, between the national discourses and the European discourse ultimately needs to be improved. But I don't think we will be able in the next years or even decades to move anywhere close to uh, having a significant fiscal policy instrument at the European level um, that would be able to to respond to such external threats. I, I agree on the fiscal, um, but I think there are fields in which there can be improvements. Let's take the, the the issue of the relationship between the central bank and the fiscal, the treasury or the fiscal authority. Um, we've built the euro uh, with a Chinese wall between the two. So essentially because of the fear that uh, the fiscal authorities would use the central bank as a financing, uh, you know, system, a financing mode, uh, generating inflation. Now, um, whenever we're speaking of, let's say, particular tense, uh, abnormal relationship with other countries in the context of a, of a trade war, in the context of a of a economic fight, uh, the then the question changes. Um, uh, there, there is a question of, you know, can the central bank do certain things without be, having the backing of the fiscal authorities? Um, that can happen in situation of extreme crisis, like mm. when the Federal Reserve extended swap agreements to a number of other countries, and it did it because it had the backing of the, of the Treasury, uh, and the ECB doesn't have the backing of the uh, EU finance ministers or the EU budget because of this separation. Or it could be in a situation where, uh, you know, we would have to retaliate with the exchange rate uh, and uh, let the exchange rate depreciate in response to, um, to tariffs. That could happen. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that happening in the case of, of China. Uh, and that would raise a question of, you know, who is really... Uh, in charge? Is it a purely central bank policy or is it a policy mm -hmm. that is not linked to the mandate of price stability but is linked to some external dimension 
some other objectives on which the ministers have something to say. So I think in a situation of tension, the sort of traditional uh, silos, the traditional boundaries between different types of policies we've built the EU uh, uh, on have to be questioned and, and actually can be questioned because uh, we would not do that for, uh, again, for, you know, to monetize or whatever of this sort. Uh, we would do that to respond to, respond to, to an external difficulty, an external threat. So you think ECOFIN or the European Council could set different goals for the central bank, a new framework for them to operate in, in a crisis? Well, there is a provision in the treaty that has never been used and could be used. It, is, uh, it was essentially uh, you know, a sort of concession to the French. Uh, the French believed it would be used and it was never be used and you know, it was never needed, actually, uh, which would, would have been the possibility of, uh, for the uh, Council of Ministers to set uh, what is called exchange rate orientations. Um, uh, and it was agreed that it was not something that, um, you know, was uh, was operational. Um, well, perhaps in a situation of this sort, uh, it would be uh, something, you know, to, to revive. Potentially. I'm not saying today, but potentially in a situation where uh, there, would be a, there would be a conflict involving the exchange rate. Even though I have to, I have to admit just one second on this. Uh, I have to admit that uh, the German in me uh, is sort of shivering uh, when, I, when I hear what Jean just said that the European Council uh, would have, or what you said, Mark, would, would have a more or less direct say on on what monetary policy is doing. Uh, but I, I, I mean, I, I, I take the point that on um, on content, of course. I mean, if there's something very serious happen, happening. Uh, globally, um, Mario Draghi and the ECB president will immediately uh, uh, be aware and be a, he's also sitting in these meetings. Um, so, so in a sense, there is, I think, some scope for for the central bank at that stage uh, to to react. But uh, but I think it's basically the central bank that would would do the reaction uh, itself, given the external uh, environment. Yeah, but there, there would be a question of mandate. There would be a question of mandate for the uh, for the ECB. That's right. Precisely yeah, that's because right. the ECB has a, a defined and a narrow mandate. So it would, yeah, I mean, the, true, the ECB could do it saying, you know, this is in, in the interest of the general policies of the, uh, of the EU. But, you know, what is the ECB to decide what should be the response to the trade policy of Mr. Trump or whoever? Yeah. It has no competence. It would need... To, I'm pleased to see that even in the in the cosmopolitan and, and, and pro-European uh, upper reaches of Bruegel that you both conform a little to your national uh, stereotypes when it comes to, <laughs> to the role of the central bank. Um, we, we've been talking for a long time about that and I think it would be important to look at this other topic which has really come to the fore. Um, which, I mean, it's a much bigger topic than the Iran nuclear deal, but the Iran nuclear deal has made it very concrete, which is this sort of question about the, the extraterritorial reach of the dollar and of um, American sanctions as a result of the dollar. Because we're in this extraordinary situation where if you look at, at European foreign policy uh, since the end of the, the Cold War, one of the biggest initiatives which Europeans have been driving forward is this... Iran nuclear deal. Um, it took over a decade to, to, to achieve. 
And Europeans are still very much committed to, to making that deal um, uh, survive. But um, the Trump administration has decided not just to withdraw from the deal themselves, but by threatening secondary sanctions on European companies, it is uh, threatening also to remove the ability of the other countries that signed the deal, the other uh, six countries that were signatories to the, the JCPOA to, to, to keep it alive. Um, and we've seen that both um, because of the, the sort of dis, the, the market making its own decisions based on the relative weight of the, the US market and the, um, and, and the Iranian market. So companies like Total and Airbus that were going to uh, get involved in, in, in a big way in the Iranian economy have had to pull back because uh, they were worried about, about, about being targeted by, by the US. But even um, European Union's uh, institutions like the European Investment Bank um, uh, are, are struggling to find ways of, uh, of, 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 um, of continuing to function because they have shareholders in, um, uh, in, in the US and they're worried about, uh, about literally going bankrupt if they um, ended up trying to, to, to keep the deal alive. Can, you, can the two of you um, explain how we got into this situation and to what extent you think there might now be a rethink about some of these things because it's also um, obviously not a coincidence that we've ended up in this situation as well. That you know there were there were different views about how the euro should be organised, but but uh, in many ways um, some member states, particularly Germany, were, were, were reluctant for it to become a, a global reserve currency and to. To, for them, for it to become a real rival to the dollar, and, and I suppose this is one of the consequences of that. Yeah, I mean, I can uh, perhaps I can uh, can say two words on this. I, I I think there's basically two things that one has to distinguish uh, uh, in this regard. One is um, the secondary sanctions. I mean, no matter what monetary regime we have, um, secondary sanctions uh, effectively mean that all major global companies um, that uh, you know basically have 30% or 20% of their sales in the U.S. Um, are immediately affected and cannot uh, continue their business uh, in Iran because basically uh, the, the, the threat of losing the U.S. market and being fired in the U.S. market weighs far more than uh, than the Iran uh, the Iran uh, case uh, the Iran market itself. So, so I think the secondary sanctions, in a sense, the instrument we we should deploy to uh, sort of uh, uh, respond to the secondary sanctions is a threat of counter-secondary sanctions uh, against U.S. companies. Uh, but of course, that would mean... I mean, that The problem mean, is that the companies have already dropped their investments long before the sanctions get um, implemented. So there are no second... You know, there are no counter-sanctions that can be taken if nobody invests because they're worried about sanctions. That, that's right. So, so basically, we have given in immediately, and I think that's, that has been mostly a private company decision. Um, if, if a crazy person uh, in Europe would have said, um, we, are, we are doing uh, secondary sanctions um, on U.S. companies because of their dealings with Venezuela, uh, you know, those, the, um, uh, a large majority of those companies would have dropped uh, their business in Venezuela immediately as well. Uh, so I think here what, what we have is just 
sort of a, a certain asymmetry of power. The U.S. president dares to do this, while the European Union does not dare to do this. And, and I think that just reflects that the U.S. is more powerful. Um, and then there's, of course, the other dimension is the monetary dimension. Um, and uh, there, I'm sure Jean, Jean can, can add on that. But, you know, my view here is that as long as our financial system is so intertwined, um, it, it's, it's actually quite difficult to go against uh, the will of, uh, of the U.S., um, as it would be very difficult, uh, perhaps somewhat less difficult, to go against the will of uh, of the EU. So, so I think here the asymmetry comes from the fact that the U.S. Um, uh, runs uh, still the global financial uh, uh, system, uh, while the EU does not do this, um, and therefore we are sort of more directly affected by a threat from the U.S. than uh, than the EU would be for, uh, than the U.S. would be by a threat from the EU. Yes, probably I agree. Um, it's uh, unfortunately. You know, I very much agree with what Guntram said. It's unfortunately very hard to find out, figure out what could be done that would actually uh, change the behavior of, of companies and uh, make sure that we can uphold the, uh, the agreement we're still, we're still part of with uh, Iran. Um, because when a company is, you know, just read the, the, the total uh, press release of a few weeks ago when he said, you know, we have uh, 80% of our business that's conducted in, in U.S. dollars. And that could, uh, you know, possibly be, be corrected. But uh, then they add, we have a third of our shareholders that, be, that are based in the U.S. And then we have you know, our um, U.S. market, our sales in the U.S. market. So, so that's basically overwhelming. Um, so as, as, as Guntram said, the, the only possibility is, uh, you know, uh, counter uh, retaliation, but that would take us uh, in a very difficult, very dangerous uh, uh, field. And you don't think, because that was one of the, the things people were speculating about at the beginning of the JCPOA, whether, whether Europeans, you know, because Bruno Le Maire uh, came out and announced a series of different measures that, that could be taken um, all of which are quite technical, but um, luckily the two of you can explain to our listeners exactly what they mean. But one was this whole question about the, the, the blocking regulation, which was something which um, uh, the EU developed um, in the 90s at the time of the, um, the, the Helms-Burton sanctions against Syria, where they were pushing back on, on extraterritoriality. Um, but there are also questions Yeah, but the, about, the question, you know, you remember, Remember what uh, I think BNP Paribas was fined uh, extremely heavily by the, the U.S. Uh, for uh, having dealt with uh, Iraq. Right. Yeah, uh, then the question is, for any company, are we going to take the risk? And what are you going to tell a company so that it doesn't take the risk? And that applies to the EU, but it applies to China also. It's the same for Chinese companies. I mean, access to the U.S. market is vital for them. And they can be fined. And they also, uh, access to the U.S. dollar market is vital for them. So, so you know, we're not, we're not alone. I mean, it's not because Europe is particularly weak. It's because uh, the use of a threat of this sort uh, by a major uh, country uh, like the U.S. is something that's very difficult to counter. So you, you think, but at the same time, you know, on paper, you would have thought that if anyone could counter it, the European Union could counter it, because 
we have such a deeply interdependent relationship. So for every European company that fears being shut out of the, the US market, there are American companies that fear being shut out of the European markets. Yeah, yeah, you could do that. But would it change the behavior of the European company? Would it change the behavior of Total? Would they, would they reverse the decision to withdraw from Iran? No. Because, you know, the fact that there would be European retaliation would not change the fact that for them, they would be the, the first hurt by the U.S. decision and nobody could come to their rescue. But isn't it a bit like what we were talking about on trade earlier? Because I, I suppose the, the hope would be that the threat of going after Exxon over here might force uh, President Trump to give Total a waiver so that they could carry on with, um, with their with their deal. They, you know, this is, this is uh, a battle between big boys. It's not, it's not, you know, if people are behaving in a kind of transactional and an aggressive way, one needs to have some countermeasures which one could take. No, I, 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 I think uh, what you're saying, Mark, is exactly right. I mean, if you, are, if you were, to, were ready to, uh, to go after US companies in Europe, that would be a pretty strong counter threat whether it changes behavior in the U.S. and changes the view of the U.S. president, um, that I don't know. That's a behavioral question um, that is outside of my, my scope of competence. But it would be really a nuclear, a nuclear action. And I, I guess what, I'm, what, I, what John and I are saying is that uh, neither the companies uh, nor um, actually uh, our governments or the European Union itself would be ready to take such a risk, um, which would be absolutely dramatic, the size of um, our uh, our mutual investments in each uh, in each uh, in each uh, economic block, um, and so so the decision basically is not to pick that fight because if you if you pick that fight, uh, it would be absolutely dramatic, and probably the conclusion is that the Iran deal is not worth uh, that much um, uh, to uh, to. Uh, uh, to the European Union. I, yeah, I suppose the fear for Europeans is that today it's Iran, tomorrow it will be another country, and that what, what is being tested here is Europe's ability to, to sustain its own um, policies towards third countries. Can we tease out a bit more some of these questions about the, the, the kind of monetary policy? Because, you know, a lot of these things are to do with, with banks um, and... Um, you know, ability to clear funds because you know some of the ways that they're tightening up on Iran also involve sales of oil to to, to third countries, and, and they use the fact that a lot of these transactions are done in dollars in order to scare people away from 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 being able to uh, to, to to have any contact with Iran. Yeah, the monetary dimension is, in my view, it is sort of factually today central because we're speaking of oil and oil is essentially invoiced and, and traded in US dollar. That could, I mean, it's not written in, in stone anywhere. So that could change. And if it were only that, uh, I would be you know, hopeful that the solution could be found. Uh, what I think is much more difficult to change is the, the, the fabric of interdependence that, that makes any major company Dependent on access, the U.S. system, let's say, be it the financial system, the monetary uh, uh, liquidity, uh, the U.S. market, uh, the U.S. financial market for its shareholders, the U.S. technology market, or whatever. Uh, uh, so it's it's that 
to insulate a company from the um, from the U.S. system. That's nearly impossible. Uh, uh, to sort of move uh, a particular set of transactions away from dollar into uh, into another country would be uh, into the euro would be would be feasible, but that wouldn't solve the problem. Yeah, I just wanted to add on on that uh, on that point. I just wanted to add that indeed um, uh, it would be possible to switch uh, switch the currency. Uh, of course, you would have to think about uh, what kind of bank would be doing it um, and what kind of payment system would be would be doing it. Um, and you would have to essentially find a bank that um, is uh, has zero business in the U.S. and doesn't doesn't need uh, uh, access to U.S. liquidity, dollar liquidity, not just for this business, mm -hmm. but in general for any business. Um, and you would have to find a payment system, and you would have to find a payment system that could not be attacked by uh, by the U.S. authorities. And uh, I think that's also not so easy. Even the European uh, payment system at some level uh, depends on the US payment system. So I, I think it's, uh, I think China, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, is, is trying to increasingly uh, invoice uh, commodities uh, in, in RandMD to get uh, totally out of the US system. And I think that's a sort of a long-term strategy, but certainly it's not something that you can just sort of pull off your hat immediately on a big scale. Um, it would need careful preparation to actually do it. So you think that Europeans could set up a new bank which had no contact with the dollar? As a, you, were you thinking about setting up some kind of sovereign? Yeah, you could use, I mean, you could use already now, you, I guess you could use some, uh, some uh, smaller local savings banks or, uh, I don't know, the local promotional banks, uh, to what extent they are involved in, uh, in the U.S. markets, I don't know. I mean, so, so they, I'm sure there, there would be some banks um, that, that could do it. Um, but I think the payment system also is, is not that trivial. Mm. <coughs> so you'd have to set up a payment system. No, but I, let me put things a bit differently, although I fully agree with Guntram. I think the fact that the U.S. is uh, telling us, the, the infrastructure, that everybody was used to consider as a sort of public good for the global economy, uh, that this infrastructure is in fact serving national U.S. interest, narrowly defined and defined in a way that's uh, antagonistic to the, um, the view of other major countries, is sending a very strong signal to the rest of the world. And is sending a very negative signal to the rest of the world. And I think in this respect, the U.S. is taking a, a risk um, uh, because the message is do not count on the availability of this infrastructure in terms of stress. Um, so today we're fully dependent right. on it, and that's a fact. But, you know, we're all getting the message. And the message is uh, the better, um, the, the more you can, you can distanciate and be uh, independent from this infrastructure, the better. So in fact, the U.S. is undermining in behaving this way, the U.S. is undermining in the longer term the role of the, of the dollar and the U.S. financial system globally. And I think that's a very major mistake they're making. It's definitely true that after the sanctions were introduced on, on Russia, um, after the annexation of Crimea and the war in Donbass started, that led to big debates in China and in other places about uh, about moving away from a, an excessive dependence on, on, the, on the dollar. Um, 
but it seems to be a very slow process and, and maybe the last place that's going to try and emancipate themselves from the dollar is, is the European Union. Um, we've covered quite a lot of ground already. Um, I'm just wondering maybe if we could go, if I could go back to the last, the, to the two of you for a, a kind of last question. It, these are really, really complicated questions um, uh, and uh, they show how uh, uh, we're dealing with a conflict between sort of competition between great powers and high levels of interdependence at a sort of global level. But we also have similar, we also have questions within the EU um, and uh, we started out with some of the questions which um, uh, stop Europe, common European action which are to do with a lack of trust or conflicting interests within the EU. If each of you were, were sort of king for a day and you're able to do sort of three or four things which would help uh, increase European sovereignty in the world. Apart from the ones that we've already discussed, um, what would they be? Well, uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's a tough one. Um, I mean, uh, I think we covered really a lot of ground um, on, uh, and you know, if, if only half of what we discussed could be achieved already, uh, a, lot, a lot would be achieved. But, you know, I, I think, I think uh, uh, perhaps um, an, a major dimension to me is, uh, is, uh, is cybersecurity and is migration policy. And, and I think uh, on migration policy, I mean, this is an economic issue. It's a social issue. It's a cultural issue. It's a, a political issue. I think on migration, we are still extremely, extremely weakly, uh, weakly uh, positioned to react and to uh, uh, basically foster our own uh, immigration policy or even strategy. I mean, we, we really do not have that uh, in Europe and um, the result is basically a disaster. Um, and on cybersecurity, I would add, um, well, perhaps what uh, uh, is, uh, is, uh, is, is important there is that um, you know, we uh, we start reflecting a bit more on what it means that on the one hand we have European standards for for data privacy, uh, but we still do not have um, a very coherent cyber security strategy. I mean, there is a, a coordination office somewhere in Athens, but it's actually very small and it's really uh, uh, more sort of a knowledge hub. I think we need to strengthen that definitely. Yeah, I very much agree on that. Uh, the problem is likely to be, can we have an integrated market with separate cybersecurity uh, systems? Um, because, you know, any company uh, in the EU can sell the, the entire internal market uh, with digital services, let's say. Um, whereas, for, for cybersecurity, uh, you don't have it integrated. Uh, so that can be a vulnerability, uh, and this vulnerability has to be has to be addressed. Um, I would mention perhaps the last issue we didn't discuss, and which we discussed generally in a different context, which is the issue of taxation. Um, I mean, we're in a sort of strange situation now where competition policy has been used, I think, you know, legitimately. Uh, to address the taxation problem in the case of Apple by uh, Commissioner Vetsager and his, uh, with Ireland. Um, this indicates that, you know, the, the distinction between uh, what has to do with national sovereignty in terms of taxation and what has to do with uh, the role of the EU 
and ensuring that uh, companies, both domestic and non-domestic, non-European companies, pay their fair uh, share of taxes. Um, this is an issue we haven't solved for the time being. And I think this is also, in, in, in a way, a sovereignty issue. Wow, that's a, that's a very big issue. I think that's a topic for a podcast all on its own. Um, and uh, <laughs> um, Thank you very much for taking the time to talk through these huge topics. I think that we've got a very, very concrete agenda. So uh, I hope that um, European leaders and commissioners have been listening very carefully because uh, we could definitely keep them busy for a few years with all the ideas that the two of you have come up with. Um, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do let your friends and acquaintances know about it by writing about it on your social media page or ours. Um, or, uh, and <clears throat> if you really enjoyed it, then please head to iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen to it and you can give us a rating or review. We will put links up to some of the publications which Jean and... Guntram have written on our website which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts and very much looking forward to coming back to this topic. We hope to be doing many more things with both uh, Guntram and Jean uh, over the months ahead and uh, don't think that these topics are going to go away. But in the meantime from Jean, from Guntram and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye for now. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenbosch and our editor is Katarina Botella-Tinano. Mm-hmm.